We're going to be returning to the book of Exodus together this morning. So if you join me in your copy of God's Word, we'll be uh, picking up in Exodus chapter 22. Now this section of scriptures we're going to learn of chapter 20 to 23 is called the Book of the Covenant. The Book of the Covenant begins with the Ten Commandments and is followed with implications and applications of those commandments which were right in the middle of that. If you want to find the other messages in this section of scripture, you can find them on our church's website. Today, Lord willing, we're going to finish looking at the book of the covenant, chapters 20 to 23, and consider the book of the covenant, or the blood of the covenant, which is mentioned in chapter 24. As we've discussed, the the law's purpose is to instruct. That's what the word law means. It means instruction. And the law has been instructing in God's holiness. It has been instructing in man's sinfulness and instructing that sinful man needs a God-man mediator if he's ever to be made right with holy God. We discussed how the law functions as both a a window and a mirror. It functions as a window in that it, it shows us how we're to understand God and to understand his world. But it also functions as a mirror in that it, it shows us who we are actually. Uh, it exposes what we are as sinful man before holy God. But a mirror, as you know, cannot make you clean. A mirror cannot make you clean. That's something that only God can do for a human being. Interestingly, with the Ten Commandments, which we've already been through, they're structured in the text around three phrases. They begin with saying, God spoke. That's the number one thing that you learn about those Ten Commandments is that God speaks and he speaks to reveal himself. Those Ten Words or Ten Commandments are primarily about God revealing his character and what he's like. The next two things that structure out those Ten Commandments is in 2011 where it uses these verbs of God that he rested and made it holy. So we know that the Ten Commandments are primarily about God's character, who he is when, as he reveals himself as he speaks, but it's also about God's rest, which is tied to God's salvation. It's tied to God's salvation rest. And the way that people enter into that rest is not by making themselves holy, but God makes them holy. God speaks, God rested, and God made it holy. And at this point, we've moved from looking at the summary of the law and the 10 words to the application of those laws specific to Israel. And we've been focusing on what the application was intended to reveal about God's character and salvation. As we began into this section of application, we read the words, these are the judgments. These are God's judgments. These are his decisions. This is how he thinks about things and how he wants you to think about these things. These words were given to Israel for discipleship and evangelism, to teach them about God and salvation so that they could live in accordance with God's character and in a way that would show what his salvation was like to the whole world. You may recall how the text makes a shift from 
the you commandments, you know, you shall not murder to these cases of, well, if this happens, then do this. We get these sort of test cases. We move from learning principles about God to instruction on how to practice the principles that he has taught. And we've been looking in particular at the love your neighbor laws and what they reveal about redemption, retribution, restitution, and rest giving. And last week we discussed the slavery laws and what they teach about God's character and salvation, also personal injury laws. And today we'll be looking more at personal property laws and societal and Sabbath laws, remembering that all of these things are focused on God making things holy. And it's showing us that holiness involves the big things in life as well as the little things, uh, even your animals. And these truths about creation are for all creation. These truths run throughout the entire existence of creation and history. And the Lord is the Lord over all things, as we see, not just over some things. So as we come to chapter 22, we're going to look at the first 15 verses together, focusing on the point that God is a God of restitution. You're going to hear that word repeated over and over, restitution. So let's begin in to looking at these first 15 verses in chapter 22. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall pay five oxen for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. And if the thief is caught while breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there will be no blood guiltiness on his account. But if the sun has risen on him, there will be blood guiltiness on his account. He shall surely make restitution. If he owns nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If what he stole is actually found alive in his hand, whether an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. If a man lets a field or vineyard be grazed bare and lets his animal loose so that it grazes another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best of his own field and the best of his own vineyard. If a fire breaks out and spreads to thorn bushes so that the stacked grain or the standing grain or the field itself is consumed, he who started the fire shall surely make restitution. If a man gives his neighbor money or goods to keep for him and it is stolen from the man's house, if the thief is caught, he shall pay double. If the thief is not caught, then the owner of the house shall appear before the judges to determine whether he laid his hand, hands on his neighbor's property. For every breach of trust, whether it is for ox, for donkey, for sheep, for clothing, or for any lost thing about which one says, this is it. The case of both parties shall come before the judges. He whom the judges condemn shall pay double to his neighbor. If a man gives his neighbor a donkey, an ox, a sheep, or any animal to keep for him, and it dies or is injured or is driven away while no one is looking, that an oath before Yahweh shall be made by the two of them, that he has not laid his hands on his neighbor's property, and its owner shall accept it, and he shall not make restitution. But if it is actually stolen from him, he shall make restitution to its owner. 
Now, if it is all torn to pieces, let him bring it as evidence. He shall not make restitution for what has been torn to pieces. If a man borrows anything from his neighbor and it is injured or dies while it is while its owner is not with it, he shall make full restitution. But if its owner is with it, he shall not make restitution. If it is hired, it came for its hire. Here we are reminded that these laws were given to Israel so that they could show the character of their God and applying which commandment do you think? We had talked about that commandment Uh, You shall not steal. Here we're seeing application of uh, you shall not steal. This has to deal with people's property and animals and that God is a God of restitution where things go wrong in these relationships with God being one who protects your neighbor's right to have property. It says your neighbor also has a right to home defense if you should break into his home. And whatever it is that was lost in that event should be restored because you shall not steal because God is not a God who steals, but he is a God of restitution. Well, what if you borrow somebody's chainsaw or their instant pot and it breaks while it's in your care? What do you do? Well, you serve a God of restitution and you were made in his image to make restitution. But why Why is that? Well, it's to show that God is to be holy in the big things and the little things. He's to be holy in everything. Uh, How how you respond to somebody when the the chainsaw or the instapot thing goes wrong, you want to show them how salvation works and the small act of making restitution. The reason we do that is because God is a God who restores what is lost. When his people are lost, he seeks them and, and finds them. When their property or their place is lost, like losing Eden, he will restore it because he is the God of restitution. Now, this next section runs from chapter 22, verse 16 to 23, 9. And the points that are made here in this text that I want to emphasize is that God says, in 2231, you shall be holy men to me. It's one of the things he wants to teach them is that you shall be holy men to me. And the reason why is found in 23.9. says, for you also were sojourners in the land of Egypt. So he's answering the question, well, why should you be holy? Well, because you were saved to be holy. Uh, you were redeemed to be holy. This is a privilege that you have. And he begins in continuing to apply how to live out the Ten Commandments here in 22.16. We'll pick up there. If a man seduces a virgin who is not engaged and lies with her, he must pay a dowry for her to be his wife. If her father absolutely refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the dowry for virgins. We see here that a man couldn't claim that because he had intercourse with a girl that he had established a marriage as if though they were just married in the sight of God. We see here that this continues this idea not only of not stealing but also not committing adultery. We talked last week about how theft even applies to this idea of virginity. You're not to steal somebody's virginity. This was a big deal. 
And you see built into the wisdom of God's law for these people is that the, the father could consent in this circumstance either to protect, he could protect the daughter's reputation or the father could refuse. Now, you can see the rightness and the wisdom of a young couple before ever getting married to ask for a father's approval before getting married, which is part of how we've uh, inherited that cultural practice and a good reason to continue it. If you're a young man that's uh, old enough to date, and you know that you're old enough when you're able to protect, provide, and guide a, a young lady, and at that point, you can go talk to her father, see what he thinks about your potential engagement. Now you see for a man here that would live in this society, he would have to think twice before committing this sort of transgression. You see, he stood to lose money, he stood to lose the girl because the father could also refuse that and also his reputation before everybody. So the law functioned as a sort of restrainer on a man who might commit this sort of evil to think at least three times about it. Men are made to protect women's purity. They're to protect women's purity and marriage in a way that is in keeping with God's character. God is holy. God is pure. Therefore, we're to be holy and to uphold how he defines being pure, even in reference to our sexuality. This next verse moves on from being pure in sexuality to our spirituality. 22.18 reads, You shall not allow a sorceress to live. Why do you think it is that the Israelites were not to allow a sorceress to live? Well, because of the temptation to spiritual adultery, the temptation to get wisdom from somebody else besides God, the temptation to get the world's wisdom, which is demonic wisdom, rather than trusting God. James 4.4 picks up on this concept this way when he writes, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world sets himself as an enemy of God. The great issue with the sin of sorcery is that what it ultimately displays is a lack of trust in God. You're saying, I don't trust that God has the answer, so I'm going to go somewhere else. Or it's used as a way to try to manipulate him. You could think about uh, Saul and the witch that he went to to try to manipulate God to get things to go a particular direction. Verse 19 continues on and it says, Whoever lies with an animal shall surely be put to death. Well, why was this such a great issue? Well, this type of perversion is a, a sin which blurs God's creation boundary between man and animal. And ultimately, to commit this act is a great rebellion against the God of creation and how he has ordered things. Verse 20 continues, And he who sacrifices to any god other than to Yahweh alone shall be devoted to destruction. This is a statement which communicates that you're to be 
devoted to Yahweh alone or be devoted to destruction. You will have to choose being devoted to Yahweh only or devoted to destruction. Because as we've learned, God is a God who is jealous for his glory. He's jealous for you to have the best thing possible, which is himself and knowing him and being faithful to him alone. Continuing on in this text, consider how these next verses teach something to Israel about the salvation that was theirs. Verse 21 continues, You shall not mistreat a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not afflict any widow or orphan. And if you indeed afflict him, and if he earnestly cries out to me, I will surely hear his cry, and my anger will burn, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. This is again a reminder that these laws were meant to instruct Israel about God's goodness and his character, to remind them that he had delivered them as the holy God who called them to a holy life after delivering them. And this would have an effect on how they would view other sojourners. Remember that they were a sojourner once. So how would they treat other sojourners that would come through their land where they weren't to treat them like lesser than citizens, like they were treated in Egypt, but they were to treat them as equals. This is exactly what went wrong in Egypt, and God is telling them, don't repeat the errors of Egypt. But remember that I have delivered you not just to come out and be in this new place, but to also have a new way of life which would affect also how they dealt with their money. So we'll see in verse 25. If you lend money to my people, to the afflicted among you, you are not to act as a creditor to him. You shall not charge him interest. If you ever take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun sets. For that is his only covering. It is his cloak for his body. What else shall he sleep in? And it shall be that when he cries out to me, I will hear him, for I am gracious. So you see here what Israel's learning about God's character is that he's gracious. So if you have a brother who needs a loan, be gracious to him. Uh, If he gives you some sort of surety of payment, his cloak, and he needs it at night, you don't keep it in order to harm him, but you show grace toward him. Uh, You're to lend to others to help them, not to hurt them. But you also read here, well, what do you do if somebody does afflict you financially? Well, you take it to the Lord who is a gracious avenger. Uh, He'll deal with it. Verse 28 continues on saying, You shall not curse God nor curse a ruler of your people. As you know, this is a verse that gets referenced by the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts in the New Testament when Paul responded to the high priest saying, after the high priest had struck him in the face, he said, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do you sit to try me according to the law and in violation of the law order me to be struck? But those standing nearby said, 
do you revile the high priest of God? And Paul said, I was not aware, brothers, that he was high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So you see there Paul applying the principle of this text that uh, we're not to curse a ruler over us, even if they do wrong to us. Continuing on, verse 29, the word of God reads, you shall not delay the offering from the fullness of your harvest and the juice of your wine vat. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. And you shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. It shall be with its mother seven days. On the eighth day, you shall give it to me. You shall be holy men to me. Therefore, you shall not eat any flesh torn to pieces in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. Here Israel is reminded of the death of the firstborn and how that had fallen on Egypt, but not on them. But there was a way for them to be restored to God. It was a Passover lamb. And all of these things are tied up in the instructive worship that God gave to them to help them to understand how his salvation worked. Now, the laws that we've looked at here so far, what they've focused on is love and compassion toward the weak and the poor or the sojourner. But these next laws that we're going to read focus more on the virtue of justice that Israel was to practice in order to show what God and his salvation was like. Chapter 23, verse 1 reads, You shall not bear a false report. Do not join your hand with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not follow the masses in doing evil, nor shall you testify in a case so as to turn aside after the masses in order to cause justice to be turned aside nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his case. This clearly picks up on the ninth commandment of not bearing false witness against your neighbor because what's at stake in there being a false witness is that you can't, you can't have a coherent justice system for a just society if people are lying. You have to have true witness for there to be true justice. 23.4 continues in the application of the law. It reads, If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering away, you shall surely return it to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying helpless under its load, you shall refrain from leaving it to him. You shall surely release it with him. You shall not cause the justice due to your needy brother to be turned aside in his case. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent or the righteous for I will not justify the guilty and you shall not take a bribe for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of the just. And you shall not oppress a sojourner since you yourselves know the soul of a sojourner for you also were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Here the Lord is saying to Israel, remember who you were. And if you understand who you were and what I've done for you, it's going to instruct you in how to treat other people. Uh, if you understand my love for you and you have a heart that loves me, then you're going to know how to love 
your neighbor as yourself, which this concept reminds us who were once sojourners and strangers to the God of covenant. This is from the book of Ephesians chapter 2, writing to the New Testament church. It says, remember that you were at that time without Christ, alienated from the citizenship of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And that sort of reality helps us in understanding people who are outside of Christ and how we're to treat them, not as lesser, but as other people who are equals in being made in the image of God, but people who also need Christ and his redemption, which is where the text leads next in verse 10 to focus on how it focuses on God's rest, it focuses on God who is the rest bringer. Picking up in verse 10, chapter 23, it says, Now you shall sow your land for six years and gather in its produce, but on the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, so that the needy of your people may eat, and whatever they leave, the beast of the field may eat. Thus you shall do with your vineyard and your olive grove. Six days you are to do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest so that your ox and your donkey may rest. And the son of your maidservant, as well as your sojourner, may refresh themselves. Now, concerning everything which I have said to you, beware and do not mention the name of other gods, nor let them be heard from your mouth. This is the reminder of that commandment to not take the Lord's name in vain, which we had talked about is specifically tied to how you live your life. You take the Lord's name in vain when you live contrary to what his character is like. This was a reminder to live in a way that instructs others about God's rest. Well, why do you rest from work and give rest to your donkey? Well, the Israelites explained, well, because God gives us rest, not because of our work. And when he gives us rest, he also gives rest to the rest of creation. You may recall that the fourth commandment was a commandment that concerned the Sabbath, but it also tied into the tenth commandment, which was, you shall not covet. Because when we're not resting in God, we're coveting having something else other than God as he is, or having a situation that's different than the one that he and his wisdom and love has placed us in. And so you might expect a text about work and rest to move to not coveting, but to encourage us to be content with what God has given you, which is exactly how the reasoning goes, picking up on verse 14, where it reads, Three times a year you shall celebrate a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. For seven days you are to eat unleavened bread as I commanded you at the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. 
And you also keep the feast of the harvest of the first fruits of your labors from what you sow in the field, also the feast of the ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in the fruit of your labors from the field. Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord Yahweh. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread, nor is the fat of my feast to remain overnight until morning. You shall bring the choice first fruits of your ground into the house of Yahweh, your God. You shall not boil a young goat in the milk of its mother. This was a reminder that they were to worship God according to his word and not to covet beyond that, not to want to worship him in any other way or with any different means, which brings us to the messenger of Yahweh or this angel who shows up throughout the Old Testament. And I want you to pay careful attention to what the text teaches about this angel picking up in verse 20. Behold, I am going to send an angel before you to keep you along the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared Keep watch of yourself before him and listen to his voice. Do not be rebellious toward him, for he will not pardon your transgression since my name is in him. But if you truly listen to his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. For my angel will go before you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I will annihilate them. You shall not worship their gods, you shall not serve them, and you shall not do according to their deeds, but you shall utterly pull them down and shatter their sacred pillars in pieces. But you shall serve Yahweh your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will remove sickness from your midst. There shall be no one miscarrying or barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion all the peoples among whom you come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you, and I will send hornets ahead of you so that they will drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites before you. I will not drive them out before you in a single year, lest the land become desolate and the beast of the field become too numerous for you. I will drive them out before you little by little until you become fruitful and take the land as an inheritance. And I will set your boundary from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the river, for I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you will drive them out from before you. You shall cut no covenant with them or with their gods. They shall not live in your land lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Coming here to the end of the book of the covenant, which began in chapter 20, we come back to that initial idea that you shall have no other gods before me because there's only one God. There's only one salvation. There's only one who forgives sins. There's only one who should be listened to. 
There's only one name under heaven by which men must be saved. And who is this angel that God is talking about here? Uh, this angel that God would send to bring them into a place which he had prepared for them. This angel that you were to listen to his voice. This angel who could pardon transgressions. This angel whose name is the name of Yahweh. These words sent and bring are very important. You think about this is an angel who was sent that's related to this idea of the forgiveness of sins. This was an angel who would bring people into God's prepared place. You read about this angel, which don't, I think you can kind of be confused by this word, and it, it means messenger. The word angel means messenger. It refers to a supernatural being. And in John, the Gospel of John, we see this angel reappear. He's sent and he tabernacles among God's people to bring them into God's place. And God the Father says of this angel, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And he taught that he came for the forgiveness of sins. So you're reading very early on in the scripture elements of the Gospel of John and Jesus Christ, who is the one who was sent for the forgiveness of our sins, whose name is the name of God. Well, you see why there's a oneness with the one God, that he's also a different person. So you're getting some early Trinitarian theology here. And what you read about him is that he's also going to be the one who curses those who curse you. You remember that element of the Abrahamic covenant that God said, those who curse you, I'm going to curse them. Well, how does God do that? Through this one who is his angel. In this way, we see how the Mosaic covenant connects into the blessing of the Abrahamic covenant, which includes all enemies being removed from the land and God's people being given the land that he had promised to them. Who is it that is going to make sure that all of this goes according to plan? Is God depending on Israel to make sure that his plans to extend Abrahamic blessing to the world, that, that all of this rests on their shoulders? That he said, you guys will do this. You guys will do this. You guys will do this. Now, instead, he says, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, over and over and over. Uh, he is the God of the God of the Abrahamic covenant. You have to remember that the, none of these things that he has promised move forward based on Israel's performance ever. He, he, he has always been the God of grace who has always planned to show them that they need his grace and to extend it to them, not based on their performance, but based on his promise to Abraham. And so he reminds them over and over, I will, I will do this, I will do this. They're going to miss that point that gets repeated to them over and over. We'll see that later. 
And this is important in a reminder that there's no seed of the serpent that is to be in the land. This is tying us back into Genesis 3.15. Only the seed of the woman is to be in the land. All of the seed of the serpent is to be driven out of the land. And it's like, well, why, why was this such an issue? Well, because if they remained, they would be a snare to you. It's uh, like the idea that bad company corrupts good morals. If you keep them around, you'll ultimately start becoming like them. So you need to drive them out of the land. You see, all of this content of the law instruction that's being given to Israel is for them to live by to show the other nations what God's character is like and what his salvation, what his salvation is like, which I think perhaps raises the question in some people's minds, well, how, how does the application to Israel differ with the application to the church? Because we're not in this covenant. This covenant's obsolete and we're in the new covenant. Well, to help understand that point, I think it's helpful to think about how, like children in a family, uh, they can't apply biblical instruction in the same way that parents do. So parents are to discipline their children, but siblings are not to discipline siblings. You know, they can't just go to the book of uh, Proverbs and say, well, the Proverbs says that the rod is for the back of fools. And mom and dad aren't here right now, so I'm going to take this into my own hands. You know, that bad Bible interpretation and application. You see, Israel and the the church both have uh, unique roles. Israel had a theocratic national operation. They were to be a kingdom of priests. But when we read that same text from Exodus 19 or in Israel's preamble, they're called a kingdom of priests. When it's quoted in 1 Peter 2, he changes the phrase when it's applied to the church and he doesn't call them a kingdom of priests but refers to them as a royal priesthood and the best that I understand it is one of the things that's communicated in that is the 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 church isn't a doesn't have the same political societal function you know they're not a nation like Israel Uh, they they weren't a political entity in the same way that Israel was so concerning applying the laws that we see here in Exodus, there's two things that are important to understand. One, things that were valid for Israel might not be valid for us today. So maybe you find a, a Hittite in the land and you think, we got to drive them out. Like I checked your Facebook, said on your thing, you're a Hittite, you got to go. Uh, that was for Israel. That is not for you to do that. The second thing is that progressive revelation, it it reigns in the the range of implications. So there are implications for Israel, but as uh, history continues on, the implications narrow in in specific ways for the church. You know, one example would be when, when Paul writes to Timothy about do not muzzle an ox. Now, the way that that translates is there's a principle. And it's like, well, what happens when you muzzle an ox? Well, he can't work. So he says, you know, because of that principle in Scripture, uh, 
pastors can be paid. If you don't pay them, the, you know, they can't keep you know, treading with the gospel plow. So there's a principle for a just payment of work, but it's a practice in a different setting. Uh, you can think about this, another example, where we're to speak the truth in love to one another. And you see, that's, that's a, a commandment that's given throughout Scripture that's it's specific to the church, but not to a nation. You know, the church isn't to enforce this on a nation, but within, its, when it, within itself. So if somebody does bear false witness out in society and they lie, we don't call them into our court and decide if we're going to stone them or give them some sort of other punishment because we're not a, we're not a national governmental entity. Uh, another example, you know, think about there's instructions for widows and orphans that, that we read here in Exodus that you also read in the book of James. But when you think about those things, when, when James was writing about pure and undefiled religion, you know, caring for widows and orphans, was he writing in such a way that he was speaking to a nation or the church? You see, the, the church doesn't function as a nation, but instead we, we function as a witness. So the church doesn't function as a nation, but as a witness, which is a similarity which we have with Israel, that we're a witness to God's character and his salvation. And how we treat widows and orphans is to be a display of what God's salvation is like, what his heart is like. Uh, it's to point forward to the hope to come in the day when things like that won't be so anymore. So what remains throughout all of Scripture is the truth. The truth transcends throughout all of creation, but the range of implications and applications is specified in the New Testament. So you're wondering, well, what do I do with this Old Testament law? When you think through the principle it taught and then go to the covenant in which you're actually in and the New Testament and see how it's refined and focused. As I'm sure that you're aware, there, there's been some confusion over this concept of social justice within and outside of the church. But you see here that God has not called us as the church to be his substitute justice bringers. But we're reminded in 1 Peter that vengeance is the Lord's. We, we trust him for that. You know, it's similar back to that analogy, just like, you know, a child can't uh, execute justice in, in, in the home because it's not a, something that God has delegated to, to him. Similarly, we don't bring God's justice, you know, as the church for him to society. That's something that God does. Uh, we don't have to achieve that for him. He's capable of doing it, knows how to do it, and will do it. So the church is a witness and not a savior. The church is a witness to society and not a savior of society. The church is not the solution to a, a nation spiraling down into all sorts of sin. Jesus is the solution. The church isn't the solution for a, a corrupt government. Uh, Jesus is the solution for corrupt hearts that need to be made new in him. The, the mission of God is not for us to create a new culture. 
The, the mission of God is for us to proclaim that people become a new creation and that he's going to make everything a new creation. So we're not just looking for a new culture, but we're looking for a new creation, which Jesus Christ alone can make and will make. And as I stated, the truth of God, it, it, it never changes. You know, the, the law still does what it was meant to do, and it only does that. It instructs, but it doesn't do more than that. Implications and applications are narrowed down for us in the church, and these things can be very complicated to work out and to, to think through. And I think the best place to discuss and to figure out how to apply these things is not on the internet, but it's in the church with uh, the people who are actually here among us, the, the, the people that God has been pleased to place around us in fellowship to work out our theology and uh, not on some uh, online discussion board, but to work out our theology with one another so that we can be sharpened by one another and have the fellowship of discussing God's word together in the body in which he has placed us. The law instructs us to see that one of the things that we need is the image of God restored in ourselves. And we need to be seeing that in one another. Now, God's intent was never merely to just change the behavior of people and to have you know, a, a Christian-looking culture. He didn't just want a Christian culture. God wants actual Christians. Uh, he wants actual born-again people. He doesn't want people who have you know, an external conformity or just an influence of his law, but he wants hearts that are renewed to the life of God. To read about this in Ephesians 4, 21, he says, if indeed you heard him and were taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, to lay aside in reference to your former conduct, the old man, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and to put on the new man, which is in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Now, I know you know, you have some familiarity with the history of Israel. Did, did the law transform Israel? Did it transform their nation? Is the purpose of the law even to do that? You know, did God create the law in order to transform people or nations? Uh, can it transform an individual? Can it transform a society? What do you think is one of the greatest misunderstandings of what the law does? It's that it will transform things. You know, that, that was one of the great errors of Israel. They thought, we'll do this, and it'll change everything. Now, just so you know, that doesn't work well in parenting. Think, well, if I just apply the law very strictly to my children, their, their hearts will be totally changed and it'll make a very lovely atmosphere within my home. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way in any institution, whether it be family or uh, government or church. But there also is this reality in which you recognize, well, when people do follow God's instruction, believer or unbeliever, things are better. 
So you just think like that, that commandment, you know, do not commit adultery. Well, if people are faithful in their marriages, uh, that, that has an effect on all of society. But is that because, you know, some, you know, picture of God's law in that has transformed something? Well, it's not that it's transformed anything. It's just how things work. What you're seeing is creational principles at work. It's similar to uh, a manual transmission vehicle. All right? If you put it into gear and you let out the clutch and it starts going, you go, wow, this car is just totally transformed. Like it went from just being you know, a hunk of metal to a car all of a sudden. It's like, well, no, that's just how things work. Your car wasn't transformed. It's just how it was designed to function. So people following creational principles doesn't transform anything. It's just how God has designed things to work. You're just seeing things work, not things being transformed. Let's continue in here to, to chapter 24. And we're going to read about the blood of the covenant in this section. Then he said to Moses, come up to Yahweh, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and you all shall worship at a distance. Moses alone, however, shall come near to Yahweh, but they shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of Yahweh and all the judgments, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which Yahweh has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of Yahweh. Then he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the sons of Israel, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to Yahweh. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and the other half of blood he sprinkled on the altar. And he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that Yahweh has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant, which Yahweh has cut with you, in accordance with all these words. The law, as we've discussed it, instructs that God is holy, that man is not, and, and needs a God-man mediator. And this is seen in that the Israelites had to worship at a distance. They couldn't approach God as they were. Uh, only God's chosen mediator could go between the two and was a symbol of God coming near to a people, but also that they could be brought through this mediator to come near to God. And in this text, Moses recounts everything from the 10 words in chapter 20 through the various test cases and how these laws are applied through 23. And it says, Moses wrote down all the words of Yahweh. And here you're seeing scripture being written down. And the, these are not so much the words of Moses as they originate with God. These words are God-breathed. They're from God's mouth and they carry God's authority. 
And Moses took this book of the covenant and he read it to all of them. And then you have this response of the Israelites where they say, all the words which Yahweh has spoken, we will do. Now, remember before this, we read Yahweh telling them, I will, I will, I will, I will. And then they show up and say, we will. It is laughable, but we, we live like that so much, don't we? You know, it's a reflection of our own hearts. We see the promise of, of God and then we say, well, I'm going to do it rather than trusting his work in us. I think there's a helpful statement in a big white book called Biblical Doctrine, edited by MacArthur and Mayhew on understanding the Mosaic Covenant, which I want to read a small section to you. The author writes, The Mosaic Covenant was a gracious covenant. It was not a means of salvation, but the God-intended way for Israel to show its love and commitment to God. Though Israel promised to obey, the biblical record demonstrates that Israel disobeyed God and faced curses for breaking the covenant. In addition to continually violating the law, Israel perverted the law in two main ways. First, many Jews wrongly twisted the covenant to become a means of works, righteousness, salvation. Second, many emphasized the external rituals of the covenant at the expense of the heart of love. You see that contrast that we pointed out where God had promised to do these many things based on his covenants of promise. But we will is not how somebody comes near to God. The way that we come near to him is through I will and what he promised to do. And this is what the law teaches. The law teaches we don't and that we need the one who will be who he will be, the one who pardons transgressions, sin, and iniquity. The problem with the human heart is that it perceives God's law as a bridge to God rather than an instructor that points you to the only way and truth in life. The, the law never functions as a bridge for anybody. It simply points to the cross. And in the ratification of the Mosaic Covenant, we read here and how blood was sprinkled. Israel was here making an agreement with God and as the blood was sprinkled on them, what was being communicated was, if you break this covenant, you die. Your blood is going to be spilt. And, you know, in all of that, they're saying, we're committed to that. We're, we're committed to upholding our end of the deal or accepting the death penalty if we fail in any way. Here you see these ideas of obedience and blood are being tied together and that they're saying we're going to be obedient, but the tension that if they're not, then their blood has to be shed, which helps perhaps uh, understand why Paul referred to this covenant in 2 Corinthians 3 as this was a ministry of death. This was a ministry that shows you that you're condemned and you deserve to die, but it wasn't a ministry that shows you 
how to be justified necessarily. It wasn't a ministry of life. And so what's communicated here is to the Israelites, if you don't obey, you will die, which they would see over and over after the, the sacrificial system was instituted with these animals in which they were to relate to, seeing I deserve to be treated like this animal, but God has provided for me a substitute. So all of this is beginning to instruct Israel that what you should actually understand from the law is that you deserve death, and what you need is a substitutionary death, and only a God-man mediator can do that for you. Only a God-man can save you. But instead of trusting God for the mediator, they just say, we will. But how is it that God deals with their failed obedience and their deserved death? Well, he provides a substitute, a substitute who would die in their place and be their obedience. We read about him as being the one who we know as the suffering servant in Isaiah 52, when God says, behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted, just as many were appalled at you, my people. So his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Thus, he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. And so you read here again of the sprinkling of blood, but it's not the, the blood that you deserve to die, but it's his blood that says, I died so that you don't have to. The servant that we read of here was everything that Israel was supposed to be. He was everything that they couldn't be and wouldn't be. And he did this so that he could fulfill extending the promise of blessing that he promised to Abraham in their place, that he would be the fulfiller of the Mosaic covenant and the one who would extend blessing to the nations. In the new covenant, we have the benefits of Jesus's obedience and blood given to us. You can hear that in this statement in the very beginning of Peter's first epistle in verse 2. says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying of the work of the Spirit, to the obedience of Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. You see, God's foreordained plan was always to sanctify his people by his Spirit. He never sanctifies them by his law. It's always by his Spirit. And it's by his Spirit that he makes one alive to being able to obey and have the ability to walk according to his law. And you hear that phrase in there, not only to the obedience of Jesus, but the sprinkling of his blood, which is tying back into our text in Exodus, which is an idea of, uh, we didn't start with a committed obedience to God. We didn't start with, we will, and then we had the strength to work it out. But then our salvation started with the God who said, I will, and he's accomplished saving us and bringing us into having a committed obedience to him. Where the old covenant teaches that you deserve death, the new covenant teaches that Christ died that you may live obedient 
unto him by the sprinkling of his blood on many nations. And the new covenant is better because in it, Jesus meets the death requirement in our place and the righteousness requirement. We had looked at this last week in Romans 8. I want to read that to you again. It conveys the same idea, Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Coming back to the blood of the covenant, you see it was a, a way of expressing both consecration and accountability, that they, they were supposed to be set apart to God and he would hold them accountable to that. And like with every good covenant in the Bible, it comes with a fellowship meal, which we read about in verse 9. So chapter 24, verse 9. Then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel, and under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself, yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel, and they beheld God, and they ate and drank. Now Yahweh said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and remain there, and I will give you the stone tablets with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses arose with Joshua, his attendant, and Moses went up to the mountain of God. But to the elders, he said, remain here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a legal matter, let him approach them. Then Moses went up to the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. And the glory of Yahweh dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses from the midst of the cloud. And the appearance of the glory of Yahweh was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop in the eyes of the sons of Israel. Then Moses entered the midst of the cloud as he went up to the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. The covenant ratification or beginning of this covenant was followed by a fellowship meal. And they saw something of the God of Israel that could be seen and they could still remain alive afterwards. Uh, they could not come near to him, but even though they couldn't come near to him, they were seeing that the God of Israel was coming near to them through his chosen mediator. And Moses uniquely was the only one who could go up from the table. Which, as you think about this expression of they're seeing something of God, there's this fellowship with him at this covenant. There's more things that you want to know about it that are not explained till later in Scripture, particularly when you get to John 1.18 when it says, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. So you're like, well, what does God look like? What is he like? Jesus. 
He's the one who explains what God is like. And concerning his new covenant and his blood, he said in Matthew 26, 28, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. And the apostle Paul instructing towards the Lord's Supper, he says in the same way he took the cup also after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. You hear the difference there? He's not saying it's your blood that shed, but it's my blood in order to rescue. It's my death in order to save you from death. And you're to do this. You're to remember that. And as often as you drink it, to do it in remembrance of me. And then Hebrews, it ties into these same ideas toward the end of chapter 13, where the author writes, now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, our Lord Jesus. You see, the new covenant's also different in that it's not a temporary covenant, but it's an eternal covenant. The way that we come to Jesus is not through we will, but because of what he has done for us. As you see here, only Moses could come up on the mountain and remain. Only the mediator could go to this mountain and, and live. It's similar to just like man couldn't go back into Eden without being killed by the angel army. Just like you can't touch the foothills of Mount Sinai. Your only hope is that somebody could go up that mountain, come back down that mountain, and then bring you back up again. And God graciously brought back down to them, would give to them these stone tablets. Why don't you usually think about this as two separate tablets where you have four commandments on one and six on the other, but what these actually, these, these were both you know, c complete, they all had all ten commandments on them, each one. They functioned as a sort of bill of receipt, kind of like there's the original copy and the carbon copy, and it's uh, you, you kids maybe never seen one of these things. Well, I used to go to this gas station, and the guy would pump your gas, and he would wash your windshield, and you'd go in, and he'd write a receipt, and he would have his little sheet, and there would be a carbon copy that he would tear off and hand to you. That's kind of the idea here. It was the ancient custom when a, a king or a ruler would uh, give his requirements for a people. He would keep one copy for himself and the other for them, to saying, you know, I have a copy of what I told you, that, that you're, to, you're required to keep for me, and you have your copy showing that you received it. It's a bill of receipt. It's communicating, I don't, you guys got these, and you owe me what you said that you were going to give to me, which is obedience. But what's interesting here is that God doesn't keep with the ancient custom of keeping his copy. He gives them both. Why does he give them both? Well, one reason is it's a testimony against them. Now there's two or three witnesses against them. There's not just one, but there's two. And I think there's also this element that perhaps the giving of God's copy to the people was also a precursor of the fact that he wasn't going to keep a record of debt against them. Uh, that he was going to show loving kindness toward those who fear him. That's like the idea of what we read about in Psalm 103, 
Yahweh performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. Yahweh is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always contend with us, and he will not keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, and he has not rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so Yahweh has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our form, he remembers that we are dust. The law is instructing in all of these truths. As we discussed, what does the law do? It instructs. Does it save? No. Does it bring near to God? No. Does it transform people or society? No. But in all of this, you see the appearance of the glory of God, that that is the thing that changes everything. You know, it's his being with his people. It's his glory that transforms ultimately. And... You can learn more about that if you look up that phrase 40 days and 40 nights throughout the whole Bible and see how that connects through Noah to Moses to Elijah to Jesus. Well, we've come to the end of our time, and I want to close with reading Hebrews from Hebrews chapter 9, which is a commentary back on this passage here. If you want to follow along with me, I'm going to pick up in Hebrews 9.15. It's Hebrews 9. 15. And for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the trespasses that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never in force while the one who made it lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry, he sprinkled with the blood. And according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter holy places made with hands, mere copies of the true ones, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy places year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, 
once at the consummation of the ages. He has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. And as we eagerly await him, let's have the music team come forward as we pray together for our final song. Our gracious Lord Jesus, we thank you for your blood shed on our behalf for the new covenant, for you being the God who comes to seek and to save the lost, that you were sent to shed your blood for the forgiveness of our sins, to bring us near to God, that we could know you and live with you forever. And we look forward to that day of your return and being with you forever and ever in the new heavens and the new earth, which you will surely do. And it gives us a great hope. We thank you for these realities. Pray that you help us to think on them as we now gather to sing your praises. Amen. the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant our Lord Jesus equip you in every good thing to do his will by doing in us what is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom be the glory forever and ever Amen